0: Right. Um, Xenophobic city. According to the Eurobarometer, Athens uh, has been uh, classified as the second most xenophobic city in Europe. Uh, 56% of the people responded to the question, do you consider positive thing that there are foreigners in the city? Do you consider positive thing to have foreigners, that your city has foreigners? And 56% say no. Uh, they consider it something negative. The first one is Nicosia, Cyprus, which, yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess um, it, it explains partly the, the, the why Athens is second, where it was over 60% who respond that they don't want foreigners in the city. Uh, there is another piece of little piece of information. Uh, sorry, now I give you a bit, a bit anecdotal mm. rela- references. But on May 2014, Mamadou Ba from Guinea. West Africa was, um, was granted asylum in Belgium. He had already political asylum, a grand political asylum in Greece, in Athens, but because his life was in danger by, due to police attacks and neo Nazi attacks for the first time in the history of the European Union we had another EU member who is granted political asylum to somebody who already holds political asylum in another in another EU member. Um, which manifests a lot, what do we mean by that by that xenophobic city, as part of my project, we did um, uh, quite some work with migrant communities, M- basically mostly with, a lot a lot of work with migrant communities. One of the basic things which emerged is that basically there are a lot of informal racist attacks that people without documents are unable in any way to record. To refer to the police, as, or, or especially the police, because very often there are police officers who commit the racist crimes. Uh, so they need a way to go public. So we had the, it was an ESRC uh, project, so we had some money, we have the know-how, we had technical staff uh, in the project. Uh, that was one of the Future Research Leaders project that ESRC has been very generous. In, in organizing your time and allows you to organize it as you want it. So we had people, digital people, who, who were uh, on the project and th- we created this digital interactive map of racist attacks, uh, which basically is crowd, cra- crowdsourced, which means that people can refer to it. Usually, uh, not usually, always we confirm the information with the migratory communities we know in Athens, uh, all through media, and in the case there is police with police report, but usually the migratory <laughs> communities, which are often led by people who hold do- the documents, so the reports would be this is the map the we divide things in categories and the, we keep updating we're still updating the the, the map uh, the latest incident was in uh, in in September we have recorded and confirmed over two hundred attacks totally. Uh, we, with uh, full information details, it was discovered by the Guardian and the Future. It and various, Al Jazeera, various of these of these outlets. Um, but, but we have we have uh, we mostly managed to find ways to, to organize to organize this piece of information, which talks about this this xenophobic uh, xenophobia in Athens. Uh, we also produced a documentary. Uh, as part of that project, and I will show you a very quick comment, some some words from one of our of our informants, a migrant, an African migrant in Athens. In order to start it, because I could read the I could read the 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 quote to you, uh, but I think it's better if if we let people speak. They seem like they are they are trapped. So they used to go um, um, around Athens to sit in the park, and then the residents of that area used to come out and shout, we don't want you here in our county. But they don't have nowhere to go. Lack of um, place to live. They don't have place to live, and they cannot go out of Greece. So every the, as the days pass, instead of improving the human rights in Greece, it's getting worse. Still, the crisis, All right, thank you for the speakers. Actually, they're working pretty well, and thank you, Ben, for the excellent synchronization. So I think a basic question which emerged while doing a research is why Athens became <coughs> Became xenophobic, or how it became Is it interesting, because during my first big ethnographic research, which was on the Albanian Greek borders with Albanian migrants, uh, people would narrate to you full on the story of how attitude changed between early 90s and late 90s in the way they were received in Greece, and socially, Politically as well, institutionally, but also also socially. So the question is, why? One, before going to that, should say that, should give out, that uh, basically it's an institutional decision to, 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 to create xenophobic spaces and spaces where people uh, will not feel welcome. It is interesting, in one of the last Frontex meetings, Greek Prime Minister and Italian Prime Minister managed to change the lead phrase, and instead of prevention, we used the pushed back uh, the, concept, the term of push back. The Greek Prime Minister was bragging in the parliament that he managed to, to, to change this phrasing It's a really important saying very few days later we had the incident of Armmakwanisi, uh, it's a little island between Turkey and Greece, where actually a boat of Afghani migrants flipped over and, and uh, the majority of the women and children on the boat got killed. As soon as the ones who survived came out, they they said that the Coast Guards pushed them into the water, that basically were not allowing them to help the people from the sea and that they were basically kept in the water, pushed children and women back into the water and were preventing people from helping the others. That's a very interesting story because we have lots of deaths of migrants in the Mediterranean borders lately. And one should perhaps, perhaps we start thinking of, of what kind of society is contemporary Europe, where given that in classical sociological theory, solidarity is so crucial for understanding the way that, that society functions and bonds together. Given that we are in a period where solidarity is so, excep- is so um, exceptional, and we can express solidarity towards certain people, but it's, it's almost legitimated not to <coughs> express solidarity. To some other categories, what kind of new social morphology we, we, we are having. It's an interesting slogan in Athens among the anti racist crowd, uh, which is in the minefields of Everest River, this is the river between Turkey and Greece, and in the bottom of the Aegean Sea is being built the security of the Europeans. We, 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 which I think that in some ways uh, um, uh, Evros used to have minefields, doesn't have anymore, but it is the early and mid-'90s deaths on the European border. There were people who were crossing the border on foot and were blowing up themselves, stepping on minefields between Turkey and Greece. Eventually, the mines were moved out, but still people end up getting killed and dying on the Greek borders, which are upgraded into European borders lately. So how can have a xenophobic city in the case of Athens, how this xenophobic city functions? Uh, Between 1995 and 2007, Greece experienced one of the European Union's highest rates of economic growth. However, a substantial portion of the country's population was partially excluded or had a very unfair share in the material benefits that were linked to that growth. The first victims of exclusions were migrants. Between the early 90s and late 90s, there is over half a million people, mostly from the Balkans, who cross Greek borders that's very important for Greece for political reasons, like it was very important for Italy for political reasons, to migratory-sending countries are upgraded to migratory destinations. So that automatically implies a very big political project which is taking place in these countries. It signifies the modernization. It signifies the upgrading into the West and they're upgrading into the, into the inclusion into the, into the northern part of the continent to do full European identity, basically. So we have all these people who are entering the country, and it's interesting because in Greece, the estimation talk about half a million, six hundred thousand people, and most of them migrate without documents. It's very difficult. Most of them are Albanians. There is, there is no passport policy when the big migratory flow starts, and there is no proper visa policy in the Greek diplomatic authorities either. And these neighboring mountains people do cross the border on foot. So we have people who, are not, who lack documents, but at the same time, these people do find a country which has no proper policy to legalize themselves, to get a kind of document. It takes several years. Basically, the f- we have in 1997 the first regularization policy, which is impossible because it requires from people to be in the country for 10 years, which excludes most of the migrants, obviously, since they came between 1991. And, and uh, we have in 2001 an upgraded, better, better policy, which is a bit more realistic, but again, it's very difficult, very expensive, and and, and very few places where you can apply and so on. So we have actually people who, living without documents, cannot work properly, they work in the black black market. Uh, Most of these migrants, therefore, spent several years in Greece, either with temporary documents or entirely without papers, thus becoming an easily exploited and institutionally institutionally stigmatized group. Even in the 90s, most migrants came from post-socialist countries. In the 2000s, increasing numbers came from the World War Zones. For example, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Palestine, Kurdistan, all from dictatorial regimes, Pakistan, Egypt, Iran, and so on. To mention but a few, being the most southeastern member of the European Union with large sea borders on the east and south of the continent, Greece became the first stop in the eastern Mediterranean for the flourishing undocumented migratory flows. These people often headed towards the urban centers, to remain less visible, to leave the country, in their effort to leave the country, in a, a bit more easily, or find people they knew, or find a job easily in comparison to the rural areas. If part of the early migratory flows of the 90s may be relatively, relatively settled today, many of the undocumented or semi-documented migrants who arrived during the 2000s have been living under extreme precariousness for many years now. Financial austerity has exacerbated the situation. One indication of the increased institutional and social pressures endured by migrants was the collective hunger strike by 300 semi-documented migrants in Athens during the winter of 2010-2011. The demand was for a more sensible regularization policy for migrants in Greece. As I will show, since the hunger strike, things have changed a lot in Greece. For the wars, though. Soon after the strike, migrants in the country were to experience an increase in racist physical attacks carried out by the extreme right and the police, especially against people of color, African and Asian origin. And that's a very important element in order to understand how contemporary xenophobia emerged in Greece. Color does matter something which didn't matter in the 90s because it was discrimination against white or even more white people like Albanian or al- other Europeans from the post Right now, the color of the skin does matter. And of course, that explains why the extreme right also is welcoming uh, migrants of white origin, although even a decade ago they were not welcome. If great parts of the migratory population have experienced high degrees of precariousness and violence, For over a decade now, after the outbreak of the 2010 crisis, poverty and precariousness have extended well beyond the migrant. Authors such as Kaika, or geographers like Kaika, have observed empirically the emergence of a distinction between the neo-poor, the new poor, who are Greek passport holders, and the old poor, which quite often, or more commonly, there were poor migrants. Eurostat figures reveal that some 20% of the population was living at risk of poverty throughout the 90s and the 2000s. So throughout the period of growth, you had constantly one-fifth of the population of the country being either poor or in the risk of poverty. So it was a period of growth where things were going pretty well, but still always one-fifth of the population were were poor, basically. Throughout the period, Greece had one of the highest rates of youth unemployment and underemployment in the EU. This trend intensified and was further institutionalized under the EU and Greek employment policies that facilitated flexible labor. An example would be the EU-sponsored states programs, which in fact were a generalized model of underpaid and uninsured internships sponsored by the EU, but they were temporary, there was the movement of stagiaires, the people who who work under states contracts. It was an internal precarity, basically. This uh, EU sponsored states programs, which in fact were a generalized model of underpaid and uninsured intersex. States combined with other amendments in employment laws normalized and institutionalized temporary underpaid labor. The underpaid youngster became so common that people started talking about the 700 euro generation that was in 2009, 2010, when 700 was a low salary. This day, 700 is one of the highest salaries in the country, indeed, for the likely ones who have them. So this soon fell into 600 euro generation, and today doesn't even exist since the youth unemployment is over 50% in the country. Yet, precariousness and exclusion are not a homogeneous experience. For example, the term 700 euro generation was in fact referring to youth who held Greek passport and often university diplomas. Moreover, to varying degrees, some of these new poor had access to resources provided, for example, their families. Although increasingly limited, such resources were now not available to all the poor. For instance, many impoverished migrants could even acquire a work permit. And of course, this kind of distinction can go on for a long time, because obviously, children or women migrants have a very different experience of poverty and exclusion. Now, let me talk about the city of Athens. Where this growth was based? What was going on there? During the decades of the 90s and 2000s, growth also took place as a large urban redevelopment project. The role of that project was so crucial that the Greek construction sector was labeled the steam engine of economic growth. And indeed, the sector saw its, as we call it, as, as, the, as the students of, of, the, of, the, of the urban development in Greece, called the golden decade between the mid-90s and the mid-2000s. Tarpagos used that concept if you are interested. It's in Greek, though, the, the text. Modernization and growth, um, exichronismos, it would be the Greek, the Greek word for modernization, Devel, um, a growth development were the alluring slogans promoted by the governments of the period. And they refer to some very concrete phenomena In fact, Athens and wider Athens, Attica, were transformed into large construction sites before the Olympics of 2004. Perhaps the story sounds familiar, Uh, warning about London. The game's symbolic value was promoted on a mass scale and the Olympics were elevated to a national goal. Supposedly, everyone had a share in the spectacular dimension of the games, while the latter became the self-explanatory. The games became the self-explanatory justification for every policy, including the extensive destruction of Athens' cityscape and its redevelopment. Basically, we flattered everything which was there; we rebuilt it. Simultaneously, government elements and the corporate media, the owners of most medias, they were also big contractors. In the construction sector, promoted a hegemonic rhetoric that glorified what Pierre Bourdieu would have called the utopia of unlimited exploitation. The slogan on a strong Greece, joined the ones on growth and development. For the people who may understand Greek, strong Greece is, is Here Lava, powerful Greece, huh? And the growth and development is an apticy and with is modernization. And altogether found their materialization in the cityscape of Athens and beyond. The capital city during late 90s and 2000s saw the construction of the subway system, a new airport, the new airport, the Attica Tollway, big expressway, which basically it is the colonization of Athens in the last unbuilt part of Attica, which is the valley of Mesogia, for people who may be familiar. The new Acropolis Museum, indeed, a suburban railway, a tram, uh, and of course, all the Olympic facilities, new stadiums, softball, uh, stadium, and other other, other kind of stadiums which don't have much use uh, in Greece. And indeed, shopping malls, lots of shopping malls. Uh, Yes, softball, it's very, and and I think that was also a period that, yeah, anyway, there are various kind of Olympic facilities which were built. basically are very obscure these days. And they were very obscure obscure already these days and to build all these things for, for for two weeks. But anyway. The Capital City during the late nineties and two thousand saw that huge construction. Huge construction, fever, and of course lots of shopping malls. I mean there were much there were much less shopping malls in Greece until the mid 2000s Nowadays the majority of, 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 of shopping is taking place in shopping malls, Now we will come back into that in a bit to explain a bit more about it. Across the country, the reconstruction of space encompassed a suspension bridge, the first proper suspension bridge in the country, the Rio Andirio. Monumental projects such as Via Ignatia, this is the B highway which connects western Greece, northwestern Greece, with northeastern Greece, it's six, seven hundred kilometers, which is about 500 miles, and basically connects Turkey's borders with with (laughs) the sea to Italy, which was built also during that period. Moreover, this regime of construction contractors also reached beyond the national borders, as companies based in Greece took advantage of the post-socialist collapse and expanded to the Balkans, building infrastructures there. In Tardem, with the process, Greece based companies' capital generated additional profits by buying telecommunication companies, refineries, bank chains, uh, which were being privatized in post socialist Balkans. For example, telecommunication company in Albania, Romania, Macedonia is owned by the Greek uh, telecommunication company, which had the monopoly at the time of telecommunications. Deutsche Bank bought them last year, together with all the, the entire, the, not Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Telekom, sorry. Uh, together with the rest of the infrastructure. So it was, a, it, there was the local imperialist broker right? the old EU member the always capitalist country in the area and it was a micro imperialist project, m- Greek micro imperialist project that took place in the Balkans during that period of growth and it was a source of growth as well right? It, simultaneously with the construction and the cheap labour by the youth and the migrants, the documented migrants. The growth of the construction sector during the 90s was facilitated by legal legal adjustments regarding public works. The new legal framework provided for an easy rearrangement and accumulation of capital in that sector. For example, in the 90s, the state changed the regulations governing the auctioning of public works, favoring the concentration of activity in a few large firms, seven, to be more precise. So basically all these works happened by very few companies, right? Today it's there two, uh, basically only one, but you know, and another one which can't get all these big projects, and I'll come into that in a bit. Another important aspect of this golden period for construction capital was the implementation of privatization models such as the self-founded or co-founded public and private public works. As private firms undertook infrastructure construction projects, they contributed know-how and management teams and subcontracted parts of the construction work to smaller firms while the Greek state was paying. But when such self funded projects were completed, the same big private firms, rather than the state, assumed control of the newly built infrastructure So for several decades, paying to the Greek state a portion of the profits. Very familiar model and uh, supplied all around the EU. The share of profits was often scandalous in favor of the private firms, of course. This alleged, for example, the Athens airport is, is going on now the last few it's over a decade since it was built. Anyway, it was sold to a Canadian pension fund uh, at the moment, a part of it. But still, until very recently, Hochtief, the German company which managed the construction of the airport, was mostly dealing with, uh, uh, with its management. Athens airport is the most expensive airport in, in Europe. Uh, in terms of peace, the itself is its company there is, uh, there is a case that they were in, the, in, the, in a trial, basically because there was something scandalous going on with the proportion they were paying to the greek to the Greek state. I think that in fact, they were hiding the actual profit in order to pay much less. Uh, of the actual proportion that they were supposed to do. The same big private firms, rather than the state, assumed control and the newly built infrastructures. The share of profits was often scandalous in favor of the private firms. This allegedly was the case with Athens Airport, the Attica and the Rio Dio Suspension Bridge. This model of privatized infrastructures expanded beyond the new mega-infrastructures. For example, since 2007, the state has increasingly privatized the existing national h- highway network, with new tolls stations appearing all around the country o- along a deteriorating really, a dis- a dis- a fall- a road system which is falling apart. <coughs> Additionally, the enormous urban development of the 90s and 2000s, the, built environment, the new built environment, is linked with systematic efforts towards the gradual privatization of state-owned spaces. A typical example is the foundation of the organizations such as the Hellenic, the Greek tourist real estate in 2000 or the Olympic real estate in 2002, which were the legal owners of the Olympic infrastructures, one of them, of the Greek tourist organizations' property, the other one, which includes seasides, peninsulas, islands, hotels, um, uh, uh, casinos, and various such facilities. Both of them passed from public companies to SA's, to basically companies which were functioning according to their founding uh, statement, according to private sector criteria. Because it was really important to function according to such criteria in order to be profitable. And basically they were private companies. And that was the legal system which now, after the loan, after 2010, just less than a decade later, allows for the full privatization of most of the public assets in Greece. Basically, the private assets in Greece are privatized. They are now controlled by a new organization, uh, which is responsible for paying back the loans, and is selling uh, all the public assets, including these island's peninsulas, archaeological monuments, (laughs) uh, museums, and everything else, which belong to the Greek tourist organization, which was a public company back then. In terms of everyday life, at the heart of the neoliberal urban redevelopment is the qualitative physical material transformation of public spaces. For example, during the redevelopment of an urban area, physical access to the site is usually restricted, and disocialization occurs. After the end of the works, the time required for people to resocialize, interact, and become familiar somehow with the new spatial configurations often takes years. New material and social limitations are normally imposed since a key element of neoliberal development of urban materialities is the creation of controlled and disciplining spaces, for example, by fencing off or enclosing formerly open spaces. Sydagma Square typifies such a transformation in central Athens. According to the Athens municipality, Sydagma was totally regenerated in 1896. The second time that it's totally regenerated is in 1990, 94 years later. Between 1990 and 2004, it was completely redeveloped and regenerated, rebuilt, three times. So it's a century almost without doing anything, and within 15 years, they rebuilt it three times. Talking about the growth, eh, talking about the steam engine of the Greek economy. Between 1990 and 2004, it was completely developed three times, becoming a construction site every few years. Sittagman was advertised as the square display of the capital city, and authorities of the strong, the powerful Greece period glorified it since it hosted the largest Christmas tree in Europe, as the municipal authorities were, were declaring for over a decade. And the city's New Year's celebrations, the big Fiesta, the, the concert which take place on, like, let's say, Trafalgar Square, right? In daily practice, after the changes of the 90s, few people would sit or stand on or Dharma, if not within the fence enclosures of its two coffee shops or for the sake of the carefully orchestrated and controlled events organized by the authorities. The square was transformed into an increasingly regimented site of control. For example, until the late 1990s, pedestrians crossed roads to and from the square but since the Sytagma metro station was built in the square, since the metro basically was built, making Sytagma square the new center, pedestrians now under the watchful eye of closed-circuit television, CCTV, private security guards and the police primarily use the Attica metro essays at the ground complex in order to reach or leave the square. Sub-territorialized the passage, right? The flow of people. Other social-spatial changes in the Sidagma area included the dedication of neighboring Hermu Street to pedestrians, right, the pedestrianization of Hermu, basically, which was mixed use until until recently. And it's further elevation to one of the main commercial streets of the capital city. Tram lines and tram stops were constructed, and bus stops were relocated around Sidagma. Policing of the parliament and the government ministries that lined the square gradually became more intense as beat the security control for bank branches and luxury hotels. Sidarma Fast became merely a transit point, just a corridor for most people. Pedestrians used the flow from the metro station to the shops along Ermu and Staviu streets. But with the current crisis and recession, the area around Sidalma is gradually becoming a post apocalyptic urban desert. Many stores that had once thrived and now have now closed. And, um, and remaining merchants feel threatened by the increasing likelihood of going out of business. I interviewed lots of merchants, not the ones who remain around, some of the ones who remain around these areas. They are basically most probably one of the most desperate, they express most desperation than any other social category, even by, in comparison to migrants without documents. because these people belong to the mid-classes of the growth period. They had invested their dreams, their life, their well-being, their own... own. And that's a story which I don't narrate for this paper because I don't have enough space, who were the lucky people of the growth, the ones who participated, who were benefited from that economic growth. But, of course, they are, yes, the, the shopkeepers of the center of Athens are probably the most desperate category I interviewed. Aside from being an area... Expressing most desperation. Aside from being an area for shops and businesses, C-Dagma has typically been a stop along the route protest Marxist took, uh, that Marxists took because of the presence of the parliament, the symbolic center of political power in the country. The burning of the Sidagma Christmas tree during the December 2008 revolt was a symbolic and physical victory in the ongoing struggle over Sidagma's meaning. Similarly, the centrality of Syntagma for the major anti-austerity movement in the summer of 2011 marked a crucial generalized transition in the political consciousness of Athenians. The changing meanings of Syntagma Square were signified in 2012 by a political suicide, a protest suicide, of a retired pharmacist in the middle of the square. But the war of the meanings of the Syntagma and its surrounding area... Uh, uh, the, a retired pharmacist committed suicide, shot his, himself to the head, leaving a letter behind, behind him saying that I, I, I'm, I'm a retired pharmacist. Soon I will start searching for my food in the garbage. Uh, I have worked all my life. I have never always been honest. I have always paid my tax. I have always paid everything. Uh, but actually we are, we are doomed. We are doomed. There is nothing else to do for us. And he left this letter and, and uh, he put it in his pocket and shot himself and then became, you know, it was elevated into a proper political event because, obviously, it was a proper political event. He was calling for armed revolution. He was calling people, young people to take the Kalashnikovs and hang the leadership like they hung Mussolini partisans in the 1940s. The government publicized, uh, and, of course, as I say, okay, the, during the revolt of December 2008, Tsidama Square Garden Square Street was burned by protesters, and of course there was a huge war of meaning, a semiological war going on, because the next day they, they put up another tree, a new tree, and of course they were guarding it with riot police, uh, so, so that nobody would go and burn it, which was, done. So we have Christmas, we don't have revolt. And of course, as I was, no, we don't have Christmas, we have revolt. And it was a total, total, total war over appropriating the meanings of the square and Christmas, by extension, I'm guessing. And of course there's something else which is going on at the moment in Greece. I'm talking about all this doom effect of the urban development and urban regeneration and the role of that urban regeneration played in creating the crisis. But at the same time the answer that comes is more urban regeneration. Syntagma Square, something that we are studying it's, uh, through, through the Crisis Care Project, is the new project which is proposed in the center of Athens which is a a regeneration of the most central avenues, including Syntagma Square and Omonia Square, that I will talk to you about it right now, and rebuild everything, pedestrianise them anew, put trees, put some more farm lines, uh, rebuilding a bit more public space, investing more money on public spaces, which is a big plan that is included in the privatisation of the entire Attica seafront. So basically the plan is to privatise the old airport of Athens, or the seafront, of, of Athens, parts of the seafront, great part of the seafront, including the beaches, which would be ticketed, the ticket ticket based uh, seaside, basically, and and the center of Athens. So recreating a bit more a new city, flattering once again the urban materiality, recreating some more. Ammonia Square, changing values. I think that this should be the title of that of that of that of that of that, of that section. The various urban redevelopment projects, such as mega-infrastructure, shopping malls, transport networks, etc., built during the period of economic growth, led to transformation in real estate prices around Athens. It wasn't only the exchange value of real estate that changed. The symbolic values attributed to parts of the cityscape also changed. The emergence of new and renewed spaces in Athens went hand-in-hand hand with the descent of a proportion of the city center into material decay. Marginalized social groups, such as undocumented refugees, starting to replace the better-off classes as the latter began to move out of some central Athenian neighborhoods. Well-recorded by Malutas, Candilis, Sayas, Arapoglu, and, and other authors, the urban planners, of, urban planners who study Athens. Although there is not a clear-cut and rapid process of sociospatial segregation, since Athens is sociospatially porous, it is still a clearly observable phenomenon. Antithetical to the Syndagma square's brightness, uh, to the Syntagma square brightness within that context, in the popular imagination, some urban sites were becoming emblematic of the decaying central Athenian materialities and socialities. One such site is the Omonia Square and surrounding areas. Omonia was the central transportation hub of Athens until the construction of Athens Metro in early 2000s, which established SIDAGMA at the core of new network in late 90s, early 2000s. Omonia is the terminal station of the old electric rail network, and it's close to the Athens railway station, while buses connected to the city centre within the city bus station terminate near, near the square. Omonia is, in fact, a roundabout, or it was a roundabout until they rebuilt it, with highways leading towards almost every direction of the urban complex. So you will see the old Athens map a few decades ago. You would see that Omonia is very much on the centre with highways going to all the parts all parts of Athens. By the way, there's something very interesting about Omonia Square. I interviewed people who, who own businesses on the square for many decades and was nobody able at all to say how many times the square has been rebuilt uh, the last 20 years. There is no single, there is no, one. No, no, people would say six, seven, five, n- never fell under four. Uh, and could go, you know, to... Most people would say, I don't know. I just cannot remember because it has been rebuilt so many times that it's completely, you know, we don't know how, how it looks like how, how, when these things happened. And that was a very... And that was narrative which was coming by people who would have very very detailed narrative and memory of various other events with, with... They could narrate stories, you know, on, on which would go back many, many years that would with many details, but they were not able to... Re- to to reproduce for us uh, the story of the materiality of the square. Until recently, various public services, such as courthouses, were located in Ammonia. And this was the head of Athens' commercial centre, with thousands of shops, hotels, and catering businesses aggregating around it. There was and remains a very busy central point, and for decades it has embraced an impressive mix of activities. But economic and lifestyle lifestyle changes, such as the increased ownership of private vehicles, in late 80s, in the census of... In late 80s, I I I can't find the exact reference, but in late 80s, early 90s, there would be one million and a half private vehicles in Greece. In 2009, there would be five million five hundred. Population of the country, 10 million unchanged. With a few few variation, so the new lifestyle would increased ownership of private vehicles. That if you want, I will give you the full numbers. It is on a, 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 it, I have it in another I have it in this computer in another document. The develop, the development of new transport infrastructures like the Way, the Big Expressway, linked to a more car-centric urban expansion into nearby suburbs, or the building of many new shopping malls outside the city center contributed to the change of ammonia's materialities and its symbolic and exchange values, prices of real estate have done a dip in this area, expanding pretty far. So for two decades now, uh, right, because entire Athens now has, which is everything all about, but anyway, uh, but for two decades, ammonia, the ammonia area has has fallen to one-tenth of the price. Migrant symbolic and exchange value. So besides its formal and normal functions in the 90s and particularly the 2000s, ammonia was increasingly identified with a number of marginalized activities and diverse urban outcasts. The cheaper hotels or accommodations along the square became the dwellings of migrants or of poor people without migratory origin. Homelessness became more visible and some of the most stigmatized pre-existing urban activities in the area, heroin dealing or prostitution, for example, acquired even more negative connotations and became more visible. Other central districts in close proximity to Omonia, Psiri in Monastiraki, for people familiar with Athens, were partly regenerated during the 90s and 2000s, building on the spontaneous Athenian urban palimpsest this regeneration led to an extreme mix of activities, having the same urban block posh bars and ethnic restaurants, undocumented migrants houses next door, and two doors-down prostitution house, sex workers. So in the same block in that area. So there is, you know, because it's it's a total transition, well, internal transition. The virtues and sweepers of Athens, a crucial role in the wider societies or the wider social perceptions of the area of Ammonia, was played by novel ways of policing the city. First of all, during the period of economic growth and the consequent crisis, without the increase of a population, the number of police officers in Greece increased from 45,389 in 1998 to approximately... 61,000 in 2012, 1998, 45,000, 2012, 61,000 police officers. There were also qualitative changes in policing over the past 20 years, including the development of specialized units and of more sophisticated tactics, particularly regarding public protest or migration control. And that brings me to the paradox of the border guards. In 1998, during the period, there were two new bodies and uh, two new units which were creating the Greek police. One of them was a special guard who people who are guarding buildings and uh, services, um, sometimes politicians, bank owners, businessmen stuff like that, journalists, various famous people, uh, and the, bo- the border guards. Uh, 98. That's a, the photo of the Greek from the Greek police website, which uh, just saw how the border guards look like. There's a very paradox. In 2010, was reported that the great majority of border guards, 400 something out of 500 something, were serving in Central Athens, in the so-called foreigners police departments, or police department for foreigners, because it's the special service dealing with migrants. That, that were they were, they were all of them served. But be careful, because this is not a tendency which can be seen only in Athens. Last year, for example, we had UK border agency taking in the London tube migrants for their documents. right? So we are seeing basically the deployment of techniques which have been developed for the guarding of the borders, which is a guarding of the a, of a borders against a foreign army, let's say, uh, it's, it's, you know, the border of the country is the sovereignty, the state sovereignty is based on the border of the country, and you see such techniques expanding to the urban terrain right, so you see this kind of policing which is uh, all, all this kind of units coming into the center of our cities today, 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 and I will come into that towards the conclusion if I will have enough time well, I don't, uh, the crucial role in the wider society's perception of the area so the police units increased, there is new logic of policing involving novel ways of targeting the national other, namely migrants, but also politically deviant, like anarchists or the far left. These are the two new groups. This means that the new forms of policing initially targeted urban sites rather than social groups, such as the anarchists or the foreigners. The targeting of the respective social groups did occur eventually, but only after the media bleeds by the police and, and, and authorities in uh, that respect. Using a press release industry hosted within the corporate media, popular pairings were established, such as the Exarchia area of Athens with anarchists and the Ammonia Square area with migrants, and uh, undocumented migrants, more specifically. An example of how such processes may have created perceptions of urban spaces or social groups can be found in the veteran of the Greek anthropology, Michael Hertzfeld, uh, who gave us an account in 2011 of being mugged in Athens, being was was broke, basically. And um, he just gave us a, a, an account where more or less the policeman, the policewoman or policeman, forced him to state that the robber was a foreigner which is very i think was very telling of how that that works Schwartzfeld published that account in anthropology today so an important part of the social biography of the Omonia area is the formation heightened policing of the 90s although the migrant policing is a nationwide phenomenon the Omonia area became the emblematic side, emblematic site the symbolic site of such operations in the inner city the story starts in the early 90s when the Greek police introduced operations Sweeper. Sweepers were in fact semi-military operations within the urban territory, often centered in ammonia and supposedly targeting undocumented migrants. I say supposedly because obviously until you stop a foreigner and check for these documents or her documents, you don't know if they're undocumented. So basically you stop everybody who looks foreigner. These operations included blockades of entire areas and rapid raids on streets, squares, and buildings, after which detainees afterwards detainees, were taken to concentration points where many of them were made to kneel on the ground and often subjected to verbal abuse and physical attacks. It is worth mentioning that a notable increase in sweepers took place just before the 2004 Olympics. The aim was to clean Ammonia's public facade and push unwanted elements towards less visible areas of the center, such as Ayos Pandeleimona Square, which became internationally famous because it, became the, it, it, start, it was identified for a certain period with the non-Nazi group of called and Don. Since August 2012, another mass operation against migrants has been unfolding in the center of Athens, especially in pneumonia. This is called Xenios Zeus. Xenophobia comes from the fear for the xenos, the foreigner. Xenius Zeus was the the name for the for Zeus, the ancient Greek god. So he had as first part of his name Xenius because supposedly he was the one he was the god of hospitality. And uh, out of very paradox and a pervert uh, idea, they named the police operation, that the migratory police operation, "Hospitable Zeus" in central Athens. Hospitable Zeus, Xenia Zeus, resembles Operation Sweepers. Just to give you some numbers, between August and November 2012, there were stopped and searched and detained 54,751 migrants in Athens, in central Athens. 3,000, 54,000, 55,000 almost, 3,996. 4,000 of them were arrested for lacking proper documents. 33 were arrested for bringing other laws, usually for selling fake bags, clothes on the street without having a permission. Basically, for selling stuff without having permission, the great majority. These arrested under Jews are held in new detention centers that opened around the country in the spring and summer of 2012. The police reports that nearly every night since August 2012, stop-and-search operations have targeted migrants in the center of the city. Yet obviously, Xenius usually reveals that the idea promoted that migrants break the law en masse is a complete fraud, since the lack of proper migratory documents is mainly due to the fact that the Greek state apparatuses that administer the application procedure make it notoriously difficult for migrants to apply for legalization. Just to say that I, I talked to you before about the revolt of, of 2008, right? Um, the revolt started because a police officer shot and killed a 15-year-old kid in the area of Exarchia. Where I will tell you what is going on there. A few days before, in the main place where migrants could apply for green cards, police officers beat up to death one of the migrants uh, who, why? Because they were queuing and there was a fight in the queue. Police officers basically pushed them away. Some of them protested and, there were, and then police officers dispersed them and beat up one of them in, to death in order to understand what we mean when we say that makes difficult applying for, 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 for documents. Huh? As mentioned above, migrants are not the only group targeted by the Greek police over the last few decades. Beginning in the 80s, new forms of policing in Athens and snared several radical political groups once again by targeting certain areas such as Exarchia Square. I'm not going to go into that because I'm running out of time. After the December of 2008 events, the revolt of December 2008 in Athens, came a wave of counter-insurrectionary violence. Among the main measures was Delta, a new anti-protest and anti-migratory motorcycle police unit. Delta's tactical aim is to rush through crowds of demonstrators to disperse and beat them, or crowds of people generally, and to make arrests. In December 2009, these units made one of their first appearances at a march commemorating the first anniversary of the December 2008 uprising. As Delta surged through demonstrators, sitting on a square 61-year-old woman was seriously injured when a police motorbike ran her over. On that day... An unprecedented 1,000-plus people were preemptively detained before ever reaching the demonstration. During the peak of the anti-austerity protest, the general strike of the June 2011, Delta Main's role was to disperse and injure demonstrators around the center of Athens, Syntagma Square. Furthermore, after December 2008, policing measures included new steel fencing, water cannons for the first time, and of course, a, a mass industrial scale use of the traditional uh, violence, stun grenades, tear gas used by the Greek police or, or after the dictatorship or after 1974. Besides the new weapons, counter insurrection police tactics involve extreme use of older weapons against the enemy within. Historically, since the 1930s, the so called para state. In Greece, uh, had functioned as a long arm of the state violent apparatus, targeting people initially with left-wing affiliations during most of the 20th century. After, during Second World war, during the Metaxas dictatorship of 1936, during the occupation by the Nazis, after the war, when after the civil war, when actually. Uh, right-wing, state-wins, communist partisans, there is a far-right state which, which follows a tradition of violence against the left. That state apparatus, we see it reactivated in Athens of Christ after 2010. And I'm talking about physical links here. The Golden Dawn, the neo-Nazi party members and, 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 and perpetrators basically are the same physical people who were working for the Greek dictator while he was in prison, right? The leader of the party was basically the, the leader of the party that the dictator founded after he was in prison for the coup. Um, so we talk about some very <coughs> close links here. So a typical example of this escalation, uh, so we have, we have this kind of apparatus, this is valid, apparatus emerging in Athens. Now, we have a change. It's not only the left, it is marginally, or it is a bit, it's, it's not just the left and the anti-fascist movement which is targeted. We are seeing the mass targeting of migrants on the streets. So it is the police violence, but it is also the informal neo-Nazi violence. A number of processes from the 90s and 2000s... Do you want me to stop, Ben, and, and continue with the discussion? So let's, let's, let's stop it and let's open up the discussion